0: you realize that even something as plain as a, woolen, a simple woolen coat has people who cooperated from different countries, who speak different languages, who don't even know each other. None of them maybe even know who that laborer is who's actually going to wear the coat. For Smith, this is a celebration. They see each other as opportunities for cooperation. We're making each other better off. They don't have to do it because they love you in particular. They Maybe they only care about themselves and their own families and their own communities but they realize that the way to benefit themselves and their families and their communities is by benefiting you.
1: Hello, and welcome again to the Essential Scholars Podcast. I'm Rosemarie Fike, and joining me on today's episode is Jim Otteson, uh, the author of our Essential Adam Smith book. James Otteson is the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics and the Rex and Alice A. Martin Faculty Director of the Notre Dame Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership in the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. He's a senior scholar at the Fraser Institute and a senior scholar at the Fund for American Studies. Uh, thank you so much for coming back and talking with me a little bit more about the father of economics, Adam Smith. We got into some good discussions last time about the theory of moral sentiments. Um, we didn't quite get into the Wealth of Nations too much, so I would love to kind of pick up where we left off, but then get into a little bit of a conversation about you know this book. The wealth of Nations is over 200 years old. You know, what relevance does it have to our lives today? So, uh, welcome back. And thank
0: you. it's a pleasure to be with you, Rosemary.
1: <laughs> so, we talked a little bit about division of labor last time, right? Um, what that is and how it enhances our productivity. Um, but we didn't really talk too much about, you know, what are the limitations of the division of labor? What are the, the, are there any limitations to the wealth that we can create under division of labor? Um, What might be some of the problems if we take division of labor too far? I know that that was something that Marx was concerned about. I believe Adam Smith himself had some thoughts about Mm -hmm. extensive division of labor. So I'd just love to hear a little bit about those limitations.
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, so just to summarize what we talked about last time. So, yeah, he does seem to think that this division of labor uh, captures an important part about why some places are getting wealthier and other places are not. Um, And, and by the way, that really is for him, the thing that, that is, that needs to be explained. I mean, you know, the book's called an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. So what causes, what really is true wealth and what causes um, increases in wealth. But I just wanted to note that it's not um, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the poverty of nations. So he doesn't think a book needs to be written about why some places are poor. In fact, that that seems for him to be the the natural state of things. All you have to do to be poor is literally nothing. If You do nothing at all, you will be poor. If nobody's doing anything in your society, you will be poor. Um, it's wealth that needs all of the explanation that's all, that uh, for him is so interesting. So the key to that, or at least a central part of that, is this division of labor. Um, if we allow for the division of labor, this leads to increasing production. Increasing production, other things being held equal, leads to decreasing prices. Decreasing prices means more and more people can afford it, which the the good or service. So that means that uh, the standard of living goes up, uh, overall goes up. So that's sort of the story of the Wealth of Nations. Um, But there is a lot sort of built into that. One part of it is that you need the public social institutions that enable division of labor which will require, among other things, you know, protection for private property, et cetera, markets in which people can offer to buy and sell and they can trade and negotiate. All of those things are assumed in that. Um, but just focusing on that division of labor part of it. Um, so, you know, he thinks your question was, is there a limit? Well, the, you asked about two different kinds of limits. Yeah. One was, is there a limit to how much wealth we can create? And the other one is there is there a limit or maybe are there some concerns about extreme division of labor? Um, you know, the first one, is there a limit to how much wealth we can create? Um, I think I'm, I'm going to be a little Smithian rather than Smith's own words, because, you know, too much wealth was not something that anybody in the 18th century even imagined could be a problem, <laughs> because the pro- the problem was poverty. It wasn't that there wasn't enough wealth. So, um, but the, the Smithian argument, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about sort of the mechanism of it, but the Smithian argument, I think, set, would suggest that, Maybe there is some theoretical limit um, to the amount of wealth that can be created, but it's indefinitely high. In other words, it's we can't foresee it. It's way beyond the horizon. So um, so we can continue for the foreseeable and maybe indefinitely into the future um, to increase wealth and just continue to increase wealth. And I think, you know, the last 240 years since that book was written. The increase in wealth worldwide is something that even Adam Smith could not have even comprehended, the the increase in real wealth. But he did worry about, and so you you raise a good question about the uh, division of labor. Um, Are there any dangers or worries about that? Um, And you're right, uh, Marx is worried about that as well. Marx comes in the next century, in the 19th century, but Marx was a reader of Smith. He even read at least some of the Wealth of Nations. Um, But Smith's worry was He says suppose you have a person who's doing the same operation over and over again basically all day long it's all he ever does Um, so if you think about this pin factory example you know you're one of the people who's in the factory making pins um what are you doing you know you're putting the head on a pin and you're doing it all day long over and over again every day Um, what smith thought um, was a danger was or was a worry was that we could lose the power of thinking creatively we could lose some of the cognitive abilities we otherwise might have because all we're doing, we're sort of reducing all of our mental activity and maybe even our physical activity to one tiny narrow range of things. So although that might play an important role in increasing overall prosperity, which is great for all of us, for the individual worker, if you're just doing the same thing over and over and over again, maybe you're being becoming reduced to something almost subhuman. You're not really fully human anymore if that's all you're doing. Um, so it wasn't Karl Marx who first came up with this worry. It was, in fact, Adam Smith who came up with the worry. Um, and, um, you know, his solution to this or his way of addressing it was uh, kind of twofold. And I would say uh, um, the first one is more obvious. The second one is a little subtler. The more obvious one, he says, is, well, maybe what we should do is pro- have some kind of means of producing, uh, of expanding the horizons of workers. And one way to do that is through education. So we teach them to read and we teach them to write and maybe we teach them basic mathematics. If we teach them things, maybe even through you know, schools that are that are at least partly funded by the government or by the state. Um, so what we might think of today as public schooling, um, that um, what that can do is it can counteract some of the narrowing effects of doing the same operation over and over again. So in your day job, you know, maybe you're going to just put the head of a pin on a head on a pin over and over again. Uh, but if you have some education, then that at least open opens up the possibility, the the um, the option of you know reading some books and expanding your mind a little bit. Um, so that was, I think, the more obvious and direct way he thought about addressing that. Um, but there was a subtler way, um, which I don't think gets as much attention among people who study Adam Smith, and that was he thought that if you had a what he called a, a liberal plan for society—that's his term—liberal plan. Uh, in the liberal plan for society. One of the things you have is you allow people to move into different um, social circles. In other words, we don't have a rigid class system of society where, you know, if your father was a blacksmith, then you're a blacksmith, or your mother was a dressmaker or did dishes or whatever, then that's what you're going to do. And there's no chance for anything else in a liberal society. um, You can allow people to try different things. And what, that was extremely important to Smith for not only allowing people to sort of discover their different geniuses, as he called them, you know, what are you really good at? What, what kind of value can you as a unique individual provide to society or provide to other people? Um, but what it also did was gave you a little bit of protection against this kind of mind numbing effect of doing the same thing over and over again. Because if you're in a job where you're, you're feeling yourself becoming mind numbingly bored and constricted, Well, in a liberal society, along the lines of connected with liberty, that's where he gets this term liberal, um, you can quit. You can go somewhere else. You can say, no, thanks. I don't want that job. I want to try something else. And if you have the ability to say no, thanks and go somewhere else, um, then that puts immediately that helps to equalize the leverage between you and your company or between you and your employer because your employer wants to keep you. Employers need employees and they want to keep you. If you're a good employee, they're going to want to keep you. So that's going to give you an ability to either leave, to find a new place, it's a new uh, uh, location to apply your skills, apply your abilities um, that's that's more suited to your abilities. Or it can, if you stay there, it gives your employer a, an incentive to maybe change things a little bit for you. Maybe change up your job a little bit. Maybe uh, Increase, you know, have a rotation, so you go from one task to a different task. You know, you do one task for a while, and then you go to a different one or something. Experiment with different things. Um, so that's a more subtle way that Smith thinks that um, that what he calls a liberal society might be able to help with the potential dangers of division of labor. But he does think those dangers are real.
1: Not to mention, if I'm working a job under the division of labor, I might be earning higher wages and might not have to work all day. I might actually have some free time to take up a hobby. Um, so there are other ways I can expand my mind outside of my, you know, working at the pin factory.
0: Right. And, and that's not the only thing. It's not literally the only thing you would ever do. Um, and, you know, and the wealthier you become and the wealthier society becomes, the more of these other options that are available to you and to others, the more of them become real possibilities for you. So your horizons do expand.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about some of the more modern challenges that I hear some of my students raise with regards to division of labor. Um, One thing is, you know, under the division of labor, we become really highly specialized and which means I know a lot about something specific. Um, But I don't know how to do the things that I would actually need to take care of like my pure survival. And oh, you yeah. drop me in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I don't know how to find water. I don't know how to build a shelter. I don't know how to do any of the things I need to survive. I rely on so many other people to keep myself alive. Yeah. Um. You know, and and if we think about that, you know, on a national level, right? We have nations that we're concerned with being, you know, energy self sufficient or, um you know, looking for ways to kind of reduce the division of labor in certain markets. Uh, you know, what, what would Smith say or what would a Smithian have to say about these things?
0: Uh, it's a great question. And in fact, I mean, you know, uh, sometimes I think, you know, nothing is new under the sun because exactly these worries were being discussed in the 18th century, too. Um if you think about, um, you know, the, the French, uh, the Genevan and French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So he had a very different view of, commercial society and modern society as it was. So he was a rough contemporary of Smith. Um, They knew of each other. Um, It's possible they met. We're not sure whether they actually met, but they certainly knew of each other. Um, But Rousseau had the idea that that true freedom comes from being completely self-sufficient. So in other words, I'm only really free if I'm able to, I can personally create, make all of the things that I need and i don't need or even want anything beyond what i am able to actually provide to create that's true freedom this kind of total self sufficiency total independence um smith has a very different idea so smith talks about in a commercial society or in a market society where there's um division of labor um what you're going to have what he predicts you will have and he discusses it actually at some length um is people become not totally independent of one another like that they're not completely self sufficient in fact they become interdependent. In other words, they become dependent on one another to a very great degree. So this is exactly what you were describing. So, you know, you have some uh, particular things that you're extremely good at and you're better at than anybody else in the entire world, but it might be a very narrow range of things. And there's a whole lot of things that you rely on other people to provide for you. Um, and the question is, is that a good thing or is, is that a bad thing? Well, um, on so smith's view this is a very good thing in fact he celebrates this fact um, for a couple of different reasons so he talks about a famous example of his is he talks about a woolen coat that a day laborer wears you know in scotland in the 18th century so you know just a very plain woolen coat smith says you know how many people had a hand in bring in creating that coat and bringing it to the day laborer and he starts enumerating all of them well you had you know the people who Um, who raised the sheep and who sheared the sheep and who, you know, to make the, to get the wool, to make the coat. Um, And then the people who made the sheep shearers, and then the people who made the ships that brought the dye from other countries. And as he starts elaborating on all of these different people, you realize that even something as plain as a woolen, a simple woolen coat, has people who cooperated from different countries, who speak different languages, who don't even know each other. None of them maybe even know who that laborer is, who's actually going to wear the coat. For Smith, this is a celebration. What this means is that he says, look at all of the extensive cooperation we're creating. So people don't see each other now as enemies that they should kill. They see each other as opportunities for cooperation. We're making each other better off. They don't have to do it because they love you in particular. They maybe they only care about themselves and their own families and their own communities, but they realize that the way to benefit themselves and their families, and their communities is, is by benefiting you. So there's a trade-off there, and so this brings it into the contemporary world. I would say you know um, here here's the trade-off between the Rousseauian view of independence or self-sufficiency and the Adam Smithian view of interdependency. Let's all uh, be dependent on one another. Um, Smith says. The Smithian view says, if you want to be completely self-sufficient, you can do that. But the trade-off for that or what you're going to get in exchange for that, you get the liberty and the self-sufficiency. You do get that. Uh, But what you also get is poverty because you're not going to be able to produce very much. I mean, if you think about all the things you yourself could actually produce for yourself, it's not going to be a lot. So your standard of living is going to be pretty low. So you get that self-sufficiency, but the trade-off is poverty. Um, On the other hand, the, if you are, are willing to trade with others and specialize and allow yourself to become dependent on others, we become mutually the servants of one another. That's an exact quote from Smith, which is a beautiful phrase. We're mutually the servants of one another. If you allow that interdependence, so yes, you are not totally self-sufficient. You lose that. But what you get for it, the trade off for that is you get increasing prosperity. You get people who rise out of the historical norms of poverty that has faced humanity over its time. So for Smith, the you know you can decide for yourself, or you know people today can decide what matters more to them. Uh, but for Smith, the 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 desirable choice was clear. Um, if we have to, um, if um, getting cooperation and interdependence means we rise out of poverty, that is a trade off worth having, and it's certainly a good reason for allowing for um, trade, for specialization, for division of labor, etc.
1: So this seems like it might have other social implications, the interdependence? um, Are there implications for, you know, international relations? Mm.
0: Yeah. Um, So, and that can be both uh, challenging. I mean, it can be good and can be be bad. Um, You know, one of the things that Smith talks about, um, he says he cautions countries, including England um, and people in England, he cautions them against Thinking of themselves as being, you know, we're a country that produces X. We are the, we are the maybe the country in the world that produces X. He says that's a bad thing to think about, not because you aren't good at it. You know, pick whatever it is. Maybe it's textiles. You know, in the 18th century. Okay, so in, maybe England is the best country in the world at producing textiles. Um, what Smith says is, you know, um, if you th- you don't have to have much of a view of history, human history, to realize that things change, human society changes, um, and uh, as a result of all kinds of things. What if tomorrow or next year, or in five years, some other country um, figures out a way to produce textiles that's less expensive than what we do, or that's better quality, or people just like that style or fashion better. If we've put all of our eggs in that one basket, we could be ruined. If people decide to buy from another country and the only thing we have is this one thing, then there's nothing left for us, it could ruin us. Smith says it's a much better idea just thinking even kind of self-interestedly, much better idea to allow the people of your country to run lots of different experiments. Don't have any policies that favor one industry over another or that punish one industry as opposed to another. Don't, ask, don't think of yourself as being, well, we're a country that does only this. Let the people of your country make those decisions on their own. Do so decentrally. Start businesses and let them fail if they fail, and then let them start hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands or millions of businesses. Little goes, let people have a go. A lot of them will fail, that's true. But what you get for that is uh, yes, we're not all unified under a single kind of identity. That's true. We have to give up on that idea of, well, we're all, you, you know, we all have one identity. Now we have to give up on that. But what we get for that is a much more robust. Society that's um, that can defend itself against lots of different shocks. If one business goes under goes under because the market changes or whatever, that's okay because we have ten million others that are that are doing various different kinds of things. So um, you know, bringing it into the modern world, that would be the Smithian uh, the Smithian prescription. So don't have policies that favor a particular industry, um, let alone a particular company. Don't ever do that because things change. Um, and the minute you do that, the more of your hopes, you, know, you, you pin on one, you're, you're putting all of your, your eggs in this one little basket, something changes, you get it wrong, you make a mistake, and boy, that can have disastrous effects, as opposed to let people try lots of different things. And then you have lots of different ways to hedge against changes that will happen in the future.
1: But this sounds chaotic, This complicated process of, you know, interconnected cooperation that nobody seems to be deliberately directing, you know, what's making it tick?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And it can be a little scary, can't it? If there's nobody in charge. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah. So, uh, Smith has this, you know, this is another way in which I think Smith was really ahead of his time, um. Smith has this um, this discussion of something he calls a man of system. Man of system is a person who um, you know who looks at society and thinks, well, you know, I can imagine an, a, an organization for society that would be beautiful, maybe even perfect. We had these people doing this and these people doing this, and we produced this and produced that. We didn't produce this, We didn't let people behave in these bad ways, et cetera. So you you, you can kind of imagine, you might think of this as something like a philosopher or something, you know, who sits in his office and imagines the beautiful plan for society down to its minutest details. Um, <clears throat> what Smith says is there have been lots of people like that in um, in, um, in human history, and um, um, when they go to actually try to implement their plan, he calls them the man of you know men of system. When they try to implement their plan, what they realize, what they soon will realize, is that human society is orders of magnitude more complex than anything one person could possibly have come up with. There are so many variables. I mean, just think about how many things go on in your life and my life that are unpredictable, even to you and to me, let alone to somebody who doesn't even know us. So many variables that are changing constantly um, that no person could actually account accommodate all of it. So what he says is the man of system then who has his beautiful plan for society, you, you face a dilemma. Either you have to just give up on your plan and you realize that it's ridiculously simplified, that it can't actually apply to real human beings or real human society, and you just let people return to making decisions for themselves and um, as best they can trying to improve their own situations. Or that's one, one possibility. The other one is you impose your plan on society by force because you decide that if anybody disagrees with you, it must be not because they know something that you don't know, but rather there's something wrong with them. They're bad, they're immoral, they're irreligious, or whatever. pick, what, pick whatever your category is. They're, they're making some kind of mistake. Um, this is what Smith thinks is a very powerful impulse in lots of human beings. We tend to think about people, when I mean, you can decide. Think about, you know, we should examine our own characters. When you see other people behaving in ways that you don't behave, is your instinct to think there's something wrong with them. They're making a mistake. <laughs> Rather than I don't know, they're different. They, you know, maybe they know something I don't. Their values are different from mine. Well, Smith thinks there are a lot of people who think, you know, whose instinct is to think there's something wrong, and I need to change it or I need to fix it. But
1: there ought to be a law about <laughs> that.
0: There, <laughs> there ought to be a law, and that's not to say that people don't make mistakes. We do make mistakes, and sometimes people do bad things. We do make bad things. But Smith's idea is that if you allow people to try experiments, but then the other part of it, Rosemary, I mean, the other part that you have to keep in mind is that people have to be held responsible for their attempts, too. So if you do something wrong, you, you, know, you make a, de- a decision in the market that doesn't work out. OK, but then you pay the cost of it. So you have to get the feedback for it, too positive feedback or negative feedback as the case may be. But if you allow that, what you're going to get is a living dynamic system. Yes, that no single person is in charge of, but that is constantly moving in ways that increasingly um, supply and meet people's need, changing needs and desires in ways that no finite, small, tiny little human being could human mind could actually anticipate.
1: So this is what he's talking about with the invisible hand.
0: Ah, exactly. Yeah. So the most famous, yeah, the most famous phrase. I mean, not just certainly in Adam Smith, but maybe in all of economics. um, This phrase, "invisible hand." Yeah. So what's that supposed to mean? That's so. What he says is, um, you know, people. If if I can't force you, you know, you have something that I want. It could be anything. Your you know your labor, or you 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 made a laptop. You know, it could be your land, whatever. You have something I want. If I can't, if the institutions of my society prevent me from stealing it from you. I can't just you know enslave you, or I can't just steal from you. I get punished if I try to do that. Well, if I can't do any of those things, then the only way I can get anything from you that I want is by coming to some kind of voluntary agreement with you. Um, so suppo- in other words, I have to offer you something that matters to you enough that you would say, yes, I'll trade that with you, or I'll exchange that, or I'll partner with you, or whatever it is. Um, in that kind of a society, Smith says, what happens is, you know, suppose I'm the most selfish person on earth. You know, I don't care about anybody in the world. All I care about is me, me, me. Okay. Even if I'm that greedy, that self centered, that selfish, I still can't get anything I want without your willing cooperation. So I still have to, despite myself, I have to think about you. So In a society in which your person your property your voluntary promises are all protected the only way i can get what i want is by coming up with something of value to you so i have to think about you and i have to be constantly thinking about you because you can always just walk away you can say no thanks and go somewhere else and then i don't get anything Um, so what that means according to smith is that i will despite myself Um, I will be led to come up with something that benefits you and maybe benefits lots of you. So other people, not just you, but other people, too. Um, And what that means is I will be it's as if I'm being led by an invisible hand to do something for you, even though that wasn't my intention. My intention was to get something for myself. But despite myself, I'm thinking about you. I'm benefiting you and I'm benefiting likely lots of people in society.
1: So it's a misconception to say Adam Smith is the guy who argued that greed is good. Is um, <laughs> more so saying given that people are going to be greedy, some people are going to be really greedy and not thinking about you, uh, we need a system that channels that in a way that is mutually beneficial instead of benefiting one at the expense of another.
0: Yeah. Well, well put. Yeah. I I think, I think this goes back to sort of his empirical realism. Um, You know, if you, if you as a political theorist, let's say, you know, you're trying to think about what would the ideally good society be like? If your vision of society requires people to not be self-interested, then that's a non-starter for Smith, you know, because people are self-interested. So if you're, if, if, your society, your ideal vision of society would only succeed if people's natures were fundamentally transformed into something they've never been in human history, something we've never seen before. That's probably not something that's a real contender for Smith.
1: Not Um, a real robust system to (laughs) structure our lives by.
0: No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so instead, so what does Smith do? He says, well, people are self-interested. Doesn't mean they're only self-interested or exclusively self-interested. They care about their family. They care about their friends. Maybe they care about their country or they care about music or religion or whatever. They care about lots of things, um, but it is also true that they care about their own situations and improving their own situations. Um, given that, um, then it seems like what would be preferable what would be a good idea is to figure out ways to capitalize, if you'll allow that, <laughs> allow that term, capitalize on that fact by, uh, by channeling it in directions that benefits not only the, those individuals, but everybody else too. And that's the sense in which the invisible hand can lead to people engaging in mutually beneficial. So mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial activities. Oh, there is one other thing about that. Rosemary, if I could just add one other thing. Absolutely. So, you you know, you um, mentioned the greed is good. Um, So, you know, I, and I was talking a second ago about, you know, suppose I'm the greediest person on earth and all of that. Um, Smith does also think that, that my, uh, that If I'm habitually thinking about other people, even if I start out being a very greedy person, if the only way I can succeed, according to my definition of success in life, is by thinking about other people, that means I'm constantly thinking about other people. That can actually, Smith thinks, soften our greed. It might not entirely get rid of it, um, but it does introduce us to and even um, um, habituate us to the convention of thinking about other people, too. So it might actually make us a less disagreeable person um, over time. So so experience in markets or commercial society might actually make us um, a more agreeable, more agreeable people towards one another.
1: So where in the world are societies operating according to you know, Smith's recommendation? And and if we look at you know the world around us today, does his view, you know peace, easy taxes, tolerable administration of justice is is mm-hmm. that something that empirically today shows up as being um, conducive to human flourishing?
0: Yeah, it's a great those are two great questions. Um, so you know, um, has empirical evidence shown Smith to be right? It basically his predictions about this. Um, if you have a government or a country, let's say that whose government, doesn't do much more than protect the the, what I call the three P's of justice, people's persons, physical persons, their their property and their possessions doesn't do very much more than just that. Um, If you have countries like that, how do they fare? How well do they do? And I think that, by the way, is an eminently Smithian question. I think Smith would say, yeah, that's how we should you should evaluate my prediction. So his predictions are that countries that do that are going to see increasing prosperity. Basically, no matter what else is the case. So whether they have a lot of natural resources or not, whether they have favorable geography or not, um, they're going to see increasing prosperity if that's what their governments do. Um, and then countries that, um, that don't do those, basically, no matter what else they do, they're not going to see the same level of increasing prosperity. So that's a, those are empirically verifiable um, uh, 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 suggestions. Um, and so th- that's a great way to think about uh, whether Smith was right or wrong. Um, so your your first question was, um, are there places in the world that um, sort of approximate this? Um, And what I would say is, uh, you know, the Fraser Institute actually has a fantastic, and what I would I think is the uh, the best in the world, continually updated or annually updated ranking of countries that actually um, on the criteria of whether they approximate something like the Smithian system of government. So so here's the way you could test it. Um, suppose you just take all the countries of the world, You rank them on how closely they approximate the Smithian ideal or how far, how far away they are from that uh, Smithian ideal. You rank them from one to N, whatever N is the total number of countries. Then you have an interesting ranking. Okay, that's sort of, you know, how Smithian are they? But then what you want to do is you want to compare that to, well, how are how are citizens faring in those countries? How are they doing? Are they doing well? Are they succeeding in life according to whatever metrics you're interested in is overall wealth increasing? Is liberty increasing? Are they having more opportunity to open businesses, et cetera, whatever the things are that might matter to you? Um, so I think that's the way to test it. Um, and um, what th- that gives you a, a way of answering sort of both of your questions. So the first question was, well, are there any you know Smithian or have there been any really Smithian countries? Well, there have been some countries that have approximated it to a much greater degree than other countries. Um, so that they fall on something of a spectrum. You can imagine you know, the perfectly Smithian country and the perfectly anti-Smithian country. And most countries are somewhere on the spectrum. Um, and then you can look at how, fa- how well the citizens are faring in those individual countries and you know, ideally over time. Um, and the uh, Fraser's, in- Fraser's Index, uh, Economic Freedom of the World Index, has been doing exactly that and allows you to collect that data about 160 or so countries now that we're able to get data on and you can look at how it's doing. So, you know, what are some of the countries that have approximated um, or more closely approximated the Smithian view? Well, the United States is one. Canada is another. Hong Kong has been one, although you know things are changing in Hong Kong. Um, there are uh, some of the Scandinavian countries, perhaps surprisingly, you know, given the press they get, but some of them are much more market oriented than you might think, um, or than they're often portrayed you know, what are countries at the other end of the spectrum? Well, you can think of countries like China, for example, and Venezuela and some countries in Africa and South America. That gives you a nice spectrum. And then what is the result you get? When you look at how those citizens actually fare, you get a remarkable um, coincidence. Um, And I'll say it's a coincidence, a remarkable correlation between the more Smithian a country's institutions are, the more prosperous and uh, its citizens are and the better they score in all kinds of indices of well-being.
1: I encourage uh, listeners to definitely go and check this out for themselves. It's an overwhelming amount of empirical evidence and peer-reviewed papers that support exactly what Smith uh, predicted. That's um, not
0: bad for somebody who was writing 240 years ago, is it?
1: I know. It's, uh, you know, what's true isn't new, as they say. <laughs>
0: That's right.
1: Um, so I want to kind of challenge or raise some some modern concerns about capitalism. So Smith gets kind of remembered as being a, a champion of capitalism, which you know we could talk about whether or not that in and of itself is correct. But, um, you know, people today. Uh, Take a lot of issue with capitalism um you know there's discussions policy discussions about putting limits on you know how much people can earn because there's something immoral about you know billionaires Uh, there's issues with income inequality um some people are bigger winners in the market um there's issues with uh you know people being able to you know buy their way into laws that benefit their business because they have had market success so so what um you know how would smith respond did he anticipate these things how would he respond to these criticisms um or, or these policy conversations today
0: yeah i mean you might um, great question i mean so those are a lot of things a lot it of is. different <laughs> issues yeah um and um You know, surprisingly, perhaps uh, Smith was actually alive to a lot of these concerns and spent a lot and spent time talking about a lot of the things that we would recognize today as very similar concerns. So um, so perfectly right and justified to ask him these questions. One general way to think about uh, Smith's um, Smith's view about the set of institutions that he recommended, by the way, he never used the word capitalism. Uh, That word doesn't appear in the wealth of nations. He talks about capital and he talks about capitals, you know, things you own. Um, but he doesn't talk about capitalism. Um, he calls it the obvious and simple system of natural liberty. Okay. <laughs> That's so what there's he a
1: much more, um, you know, PR friendly term. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I'm going to start using that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't quite fit on the bumper sticker the same way. Yeah. The obvious and simple system of natural liberty. Um, <clears throat> but, um, uh, but one of the, one way to think about sort of in general, how we might uh, reply to all of those, um, you know, in general, is by saying um, what, I, what I now think of or what we might think of today as sort of the, the quintessential economist's question, which is compared to what? Um, so Smith was saying, um, look, perfection is not possible. Human beings are not perfect. Um, in fact, we're pretty darn not perfect um, in all kinds of ways. And there never will be a time when we are perfect, when we have perfect people that we can put in charge of things and they can make perfect institutions, et cetera. Maybe that happens in heaven or something, but it's not going to happen on Earth. Um, so Smith says, given that, the question we should really ask ourselves is not what's the ideally best set of institutions, because there is no such thing as the ideally best. Instead, what is the uh, relatively less bad set of institutions? So, um, and maybe even it's you know what's the least bad, you know, not just what's second best, but maybe what's the least bad set of institutions given how flawed and imperfect human beings are. Um, and that, if if you're willing to accept sort of that way of thinking about it or that way of investigating, um, then what that enables Smith to say is to say, well, look, um, you know, any system that we actually try to implement—socialist, um, capitalist, communist, you name it—you know, any fascist, well, you, you come up with your system, there are going to be problems. The question is which is going to have relatively less problems or which are going to have you know on balance um the the benefits are going to outweigh the um the liabilities um and that's where the the defense for him of this obvious and simple system of natural liberty that's what it really is it's that not that it's perfect because it won't be perfect not that there won't be any problems there will be problems but that in comparison to other kinds of systems it fares relatively better and maybe Maybe even the best that we've been able to come up with so far, even though it's far from perfect um so that would be sort of that you know taking some of the specific things you asked you know about billionaires are billionaires bad for the economy? Um, should we worry about income inequality um, should we worry about people who have a lot of wealth being able to buy themselves various kinds of privileges or maybe immunities and um, from the law or something? Um, you know, some of those things I think we would, you know, might uh, put under the category of cronyism rather than what we might think of as capitalism. Um, but nevertheless, you know, are is it going to be possible that people? Well, so, first of all, will there be differences in wealth? Yes. Some people will have more money than others under his under Smith system. Certainly true. Um, will some people use the money to um, engage in activities to buy themselves privileges and immunities that other people can't buy or can't um, afford Yep, it's going to happen. Um, but the question for Smith would be, um, has there any, ever been a society in which that wasn't the case? And his answer is no. <laughs> there always is. That's going to happen. Um, but the particular virtue he thinks that his system has over many of the others, you know, think about the pharaoh, the Egyptian pharaoh or the Roman emperor um, or the emperor of the Song dynasty in China. Were they able to to arrogate to themselves privileges, wealth, immunities? That other people could not have in their society. Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely, quite a bit of it. So, what would make it different between the the pharaoh and the the emperor on the one hand, and you know the billionaire of today? Um, the the prediction that Smith would make, and this is an, a, a testable prediction, the prediction that Smith makes is that if you have a commercial society or a market based economy, the billionaire is probably going to today. The billionaire today is probably going to have to have benefited other people along the way. So um, not just stealing from them, not just enslaving them, not just conquering and colonizing and taking away from people things that they didn't want to give up, but is going instead to have to be, um, will have had to offer people goods and services that they voluntarily chose, that they voluntarily said yes to so we can test this you know think about uh, jeff bezos so jeff Bezos, or elon musk or pick whoever you know pick whichever one of these sorts of people are they providing value in the world well one indicator of that is you know you can just look at their net worth but that's not going to tell you exactly I mean, that tells you a number but are they providing real value in the world well how many millions of people voluntarily on their own go to amazon and buy stuff from amazon It's a lot. I mean, I don't know what that number is, but it's a lot of people.
1: I am one of those people. (laughs) I know people criticize Jeff Bezos and I think about how I would not have gotten through the pandemic had it not been for Amazon and the many ways that they've benefited my life.
0: Yeah. Uh, So, you know, now that doesn't mean that they're perfect people or that they're even good moral exemplars. But um, what it does suggest is that if you compare a Jeff Bezos to, say, you know, Roman emperor, um, and both of them have much more money than than many of the other people, most of the other people, maybe all of the other people in their in their societies. Um, the difference will be that uh, the Je- that Jeff Bezos, because he operates in a largely commercial, market based society, he's going to have to have provided a great deal of value to others um, on his way to becoming the multi billionaire that he is.
1: So, what would be the consequence of saying something like, "Okay, Jeff Bezos, you"? succeeded at market competition you've earned your billions enough no more (laughs) for you what what are the consequences because that is something you know putting a cap on what people are able to earn is something that gets tossed around in policy conversations so what how would that change the market how would that you know affect human flourishing
0: Yeah, I mean, um, it it comes up and it has been coming up. I mean, throughout most of my life, I've I've been hearing these conversations that uh, that happen. Um, But I would say this um, on the one hand, that's a kind of luxury of the rich to think about that. So, you know, you wouldn't want to say to poor people who are still in developing countries, sorry, you don't get access to things like uh, Amazon because we think they have enough already. You know, it's one thing for people who are already wealthy to say, I think I have enough. Um, But we should still, I think, think about people who are wanting to ascend to those levels and haven't gotten there yet. Um, But the other thing about that is imagine we had this conversation in 1990. So 1990 wasn't that long ago. In 1990, people said, you know, we just don't need any but any people who are billionaires. Well, what would we have given up? We wouldn't have had Steve Jobs. We wouldn't have had Elon Musk. We wouldn't have had Jeff Bezos. Imagine our lives today without any of the products or services that they that they and their companies created. Well, our lives would have been much poorer in all sorts of ways, not just monetary, but much poorer in lots of ways and variety and all of the experiences that those things have created for us. Um, So I think, you know, retrospectively, that's exactly the kind of question you have to ask yourself. If we said it today, Bezos, you have enough or, you know, whatever the limit is. At this point, you don't get any more shouldn't be allowed to have any more wealth. Okay, what kinds of goods and services that we don't even yet know about and we can't even yet envision are we giving up in the future? that our future selves and our children and our grandchildren might have been able to benefit from and might have greatly enjoyed um, if we had allowed it that we're giving up now. That's a much harder question to ask.
1: What is one idea that you think has been very misinterpreted or, or a place where Adam Smith has been very misunderstood?
0: Oh, there's more. There's there there's several. I think I would say, um, um, but maybe maybe what I mean we we've actually talked about a couple of them. Um, mm-hmm. But um, maybe one is connected with this idea that if you if you're successful in business in a market-based economy, um, what that must mean is that you've exploited other people. Um, and so I think some people think that Adam Smith was actually advocating a system in which some people can exploit other people. Um, And in fact, exactly the reverse was his view. What he was most interested in was not enabling rich people to maintain their wealth or to be wealthy um, as opposed to others. But his main concern really was the poorest in society. How do we enable the poor to rise out of poverty? Um, And that's what the system that he suggests um, he thinks can actually do. The pharaoh, the emperor, the king, they're going to get theirs no matter what. Um, what he's really interested in is how can we elevate the status, the station of the least among us. And one way to do that is by giving them the same rights to person, property and promise. In other words, protecting justice for everybody, not just the king, pharaoh, emperor, but for everybody in society and allowing people to have an opportunity to improve their own lives. Um, so not as wards of the state and not as you know people who are be- beholden to others, but as full um Human agents, moral agents with human dignity who have the opportunity and liberty and the means to improve their own lives. I think that's something that um, is, is lost in Smith's uh, when people talk about Adam Smith. But I think it really, in some ways, that's the core of the moral mandate he sees. How can we respect the human, the natural dignity of human beings and their full moral agency of all human beings and enable them to improve their own lives?
1: So at the end of the book, you give a great list of additional readings and, and resources for people who might be interested in learning more. Um, do you have any other you know, websites, blogs, any other resources we can point listeners in the direction of?
0: Um, I think the, the, the first and best place to look is, um, is the Essential Scholars website for the Fraser Institute. Um, you know, the, 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 the book on Adam Smith was, I was very you know, privileged and honored to have been able to write it for uh, Fraser Institute, but when we, when we first were talking about that book, it was you know just, it was envisioned to be one. And, you know, maybe we'd have two or three of these books, one about Hayek, maybe, and one about Smith and maybe one or two other people, but, um, it has grown in, um, in size and scope and depth, um, so that now I would say. Um, there, there's a veritable education in the entire history of uh, economics and politics uh, on the website. And so that's where I would point at, uh, readers and viewers to if the first place to look is all of those great um, books in the, the essential scholars list.
1: I also know there's that Adam Smith Works website. that oh, that's has, another one. Uh, was it? I forget who came up. Is that Liberty Fund? That's
0: Liberty Fund, yes.
1: Yes, it has a great uh, way of walking you through the pin factory and all of the benefits of the division of labor. So yeah. I often point We're my pictured. students in that direction as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, so before we end, is there any you know final point that you would like to put out there about Adam Smith, his message, and where we can go with it today?
0: Yeah, thank you. This is what I would say. You know, we we live in a very polarized and divisive time um, and we spend a lot of time, I think, sort of, you know, defending our own camp or our own tribe against others. You know, sometimes, you know, no matter what. Um, One of the great things about Adam Smith's work and one of the things that I find inspiring about his approach to things is that he wasn't interested in defending one particular party over another or one particular viewpoint over another what he was genuinely interested in was how do we improve people's lives? Can we figure out ways to enable people's lives, enable people to lead flourishing lives of increasing opportunity, increasing prosperity, increasing meaning and purpose? Um, and that I think rema- was then, and it remains today, an inspiring motivation for studying things like economics and studying things like politics, not so that we can win the next election or that my side wins and your side loses, but rather. I think it's it, it reminds us to keep our eye on the real the real prize which is improving human lives and I think that's still in, that was inspiring about Smith in the 18th century it remains inspiring about him today.
1: Um, It's one of those questions that has preoccupied my life and my work as well. So thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon um, because you are also the author of The Essential David Hume. Yeah, I look
0: forward to that too. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to EssentialScholars.org to learn more. See you next time.